You know, I, I think you have to start with the, I mean, the, the habit of, of going to the sources first and uh, whatever you're studying that you engage in a systematic thorough reading of, of the sources that you're interested in and in a way suspend judgment about what you think you're going to find there. You always have to be willing to bring forward evidence that makes your argument more complicated or more problematic or even uh, falsifies your, your evidence. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. If you are an evangelical Christian, then you probably have been in my shoes where you have encountered someone or perhaps even shared the same mindset yourself, encountered someone who has said, what does history have to do with theology? Or why is history even relevant to begin with? In the beginning of uh, uh, really a preface to uh, St. Athanasius's book on the Incarnation, C.S. Lewis experienced this in his own time and actually took that type of mindset head on as he talked about chronological snobbery and address the many ways that, as Christians, we can be tempted to disregard history. Towards the end of that preface, C.S. Lewis recommended that we not just read the new books, but that we go back and especially read the old books. And one of the points he makes is that the old authors from the early church through the medieval era and the Reformation era up through the Great Awakening, these older authors, well, they don't always have the same blind spots that we do. Sure, granted, they certainly made mistakes of their own, but oftentimes they can be most insightful where, frankly, we are not. And C.S. Lewis, from that point forward, then it becomes really an advocate, not just for reading old books, but for history itself. And I would argue, building off C.S. Lewis, uh, he encourages us to approach, to do away with that type of chronological snobbery and actually to cultivate a type of chronological humility. All that to say, history matters. As a theologian, you've heard me say it before that history certainly matters for the discipline of theology. Think, for example, of systematic theology. But certainly history matters for our approach to the entire Christian faith. But what is it that makes someone a good historian? Perhaps you are thinking through the doctrines of the Christian faith, or perhaps you want to learn church history yourself. What is it that commends a historical work to you? And as you begin that venture, how can you become a good historian yourself? Well, that is a priceless question to answer. And I've asked Thomas Kidd to come on the Credo podcast in order to help us answer that question, because he is, I would say, a very good historian himself. You may know Thomas Kidd from his many, many books, 
He teaches, uh, he is the James Vardaman Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University. He's also a Distinguished Visiting Professor of Church History at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He has written on, well, a variety of topics, so many I cannot mention them here. He is quite prolific. I do want to mention a few of his books that uh, some of our listeners will want to pick up. Uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, with Yale, also his book on George Whitfield with Yale. You may also want to get your hands on some of his uh, historical treatments of Amer- of religion in America. For example, his book, America's Religious History with Zondervan, or his more recent books, uh, American History with B&H. He also has written a book on the question, Who is an Evangelical?, also published with Yale. Tommy, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the ins and outs of what makes someone a good historian, uh, perhaps we could start with you, because uh, as I look at so many of the books you've written and uh, think back over to conversations we've had, I can't help but think that you are a model historian, your model historian yourself. And so I've always wondered, how did Thomas Kidd become a historian? Uh, you know, we tend to think of you in terms of the many books you've written, but it, at some point, uh, before you had written all those books, there must have been a point in which, uh, or perhaps a process even, in which you started to think through, well, what does it mean to be a historian? And is this a calling I want to take on? Right. Well, I... Um... I uh, became a believer uh, my freshman year at Clemson University in South Carolina, and um, among uh, many other changes that I brought to my life, I I uh, was challenged with the idea of what does it mean to think as a Christian, uh, and Clemson is a, a secular public school, and so uh, I was not necessarily getting a lot of encouragement on that issue in my uh, in my classes, although I did have some Christian professors, uh, some very outspoken Christian professors, but um, I, I, through uh, listening to them and and uh, through thinking about things in my, I was in the Navigators uh, Ministry at the, at Clemson, and and so I I really in a broad-based way, I don't think I could have realized it at the time, but I was starting to to think about the Christian intellectual tradition and what. What that all uh, meant for me, and and I was a uh, political science major uh, as an undergrad. I had I had been very interested in politics in high school, and um, and I continued to be interested in politics, and and still am today. But um, one of the things that changed, I think, in my uh, being a political science major was that I got discouraged about the value of contemporary politics. Um, just and just became convinced that it, it can't really help all that much. Um, and and meanwhile, I uh, found myself as a history minor, and I found myself being drawn more and more intellectually to just thinking about things hist- historically. And um, I can remember my senior thesis advisor at Clemson, and who was in political science, you know, would ask me. Well, what's the contemporary relevance of this historical issue? <laughs> and, and more and more, I found myself thinking, I don't care. <laughs> I'm just interested in the history and, and uh, you know, people in the past thinking about things in a different way and um, you know, living in very different worlds than what we live in. And and so, um, 
that uh, through talking to him and, and a couple other professors, um, <clears throat> they encouraged me to think about graduate school uh, and and uh, in history. And so I ended up doing a, a master's degree in, in history at Clemson after that to kind of get my bearings um, because I really wasn't ready for graduate school, at, at least in terms of a Ph.D., in history, uh, since I hadn't majored in it, and um, and then the master's degree set me up to be able to go to uh, Notre Dame for a PhD, where I worked with George Marsden. Uh, and Marsden, some of your listeners will know Marsden's uh, biography of Jonathan Edwards, if nothing else. And and that was the m- m- moment at which I, I felt like I was really able to train at uh, the feet of a, of a. You talk about stellar historians. He's He's uh, one of the all-time greats in, in my book. He certainly is. Marsden, uh, you know, his biography of John, of Jonathan Edwards is just a superb example of, of, what, it, of what that type of historical work can look like. Uh, as you were studying under Marsden, um, of course, Marsden has certainly had an influence on you. Were there others? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of historians um, and and uh, the people on my uh, dissertation committee and and so forth at, at Notre Dame, and especially uh, with with Marsden and several others there, that was just a great place to study uh, religious history in in general. Um, and then and then when Marsden retired, uh, Mark Knoll took his place uh, at Notre Dame. It came from Wheaton to, to Notre Dame. And, uh, and Noel has had a huge uh, impact on me, too, in some, in some uh, similar ways uh, as, as Marsden. And, and I, I think Noel and Marsden are two of the historians who um, really made it more normal for uh, professing evangelicals to be uh, also uh, Publishing with secular academic presses and kind of participating in uh, some pretty high-level academic discussions about about history uh, and you know different humanities fields and social science fields are sort of further along than others uh, about uh, you know really outspoken Christians being able to participate in those fields and I think uh, history is is one of the most advanced and it has a lot to do with what um, Marsden and Old uh, did for us who who came after. Now you mentioned that you're publishing. They they were publishing with secular academic presses, and certainly you have as well. Uh, sometimes, as Christians approach history, uh, sometimes the objection is out there. Uh, maybe especially from perhaps the you know different presses or perhaps different institutions or different historians. That well, if if you're a Christian let alone, say, an evangelical Christian, then you certainly can't write history objectively. Uh, you're you're going to have a, a, a terrible bias, so on and so on. Uh, you've mentioned Noel and Marsden, how they kind of broke that caricature and actually kind of paved a way, in a sense, to publish with a secular academic press and show, actually, I can be a Christian and and do outstanding historical work. In your and you've done the same. In, in your estimation, though, why what what has really been the key to that move? And just in terms of the question itself, you know, how 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 do we overcome that type of a caricature? Yeah, 
Well, I think it's it's helpful to think in terms of genre. Um, it's not that one kind of writing is better than the other. It it just depends on you know what what you're uh, trying to do. I mean, uh, you know, when you write for uh, a Christian press as as a historian, which I've done that too, um, uh, you you can take more for granted about the audience, and and you can uh, you know inject more overtly um, you know biblical perspectives and those those sorts of things. Where with a secular press, um, you you have to think. Uh, more about the audience being um, all over the map potentially, uh, and so um, you know if if I'm talking about the Great Awakening, and I'm writing with Yale Press, I mean I can certainly leave the door open for the the idea that the Great Awakening was um, uh, partly entailed you know an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for uh, this generation of, of revival, but I can't. Um, assume that my audience would be willing to go along with me on that, and uh, you know I, it depends, I guess, on what you're what you're trying to do. I mean, with a with a secular press, um, I mean, I think I'm very widely known as being a Christian among uh, you know fellow academic historians, um, and 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 Yale certainly knows where I'm coming from on this, and I say it a lot of times in my, you know, the introductions to my books that, you know, you should know that I'm a practicing Christian as I'm writing these things. Um, but that allows me to speak to some people about issues about faith and history that um, uh, some non-Christians in particular who I think would never read something from a, from a Christian press. Um, so th- I guess there's a way in which um, Writing for a Christian press might have a little more of a pastoral function, um, a discipling type function, where uh, writing for a secular press probably has a little bit more of a sort of witness and potentially evangelizing uh, type type role. But I, I sure I sure do think that it's a good idea to have some Christian voices in secular academic outlets um, mm-hmm. to the extent that you can. I think, you know, as you well know, there's some fields that I think especially biblical studies uh, can be tough uh, for for to get Christian voices into the uh, kind of the secular academic study of the Bible. Um, but in religious history, I would say uh, there's a little more openness to it. So, mm-hmm. so I don't, I really don't think that, you know, one is better than the other um, but it just depends on what kind of audience you want to speak to. Mm. Now let's talk a little bit about the specifics of what it means to be a, a, a historian. Uh, perhaps we can frame this conversation in terms of habits that are cultivated, maybe bad habits, maybe good habits. As you are you know, looking at other model historians or other models of, uh, of history that uh, perhaps are poor, what habits tend to tip you off, even as you think back on your own experience as a teacher uh, what, and as a professor, what habits tend to tip you off to poor historical analysis? Well, um, I, I think especially among Christians, um, it, it tends to be history that is really more polemical than um, Historically based, and it, it's 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 often uh, history that's using um, you, you know historical evidence for contemporary political purposes. 
uh, and the secular left, I mean, they, they they certainly have their own versions of this. So it's not like Christians are exclusively uh, problematic on on this score. But um, you know, I, I think you have to uh, uh, start with, I mean, the, the habit of of going to the sources first. And uh, whatever you're studying, that you engage in a systematic, thorough reading of of the sources uh, that that you're interested in, and um, and in a way suspend judgment about what you think you're going to find there, um, and that you always have to be willing to bring forward um, evidence that makes your argument more complicated or more problematic, or even. Uh, falsifies your your evidence. So, uh, you know, one example I, I give from my um, research on George Whitfield, um, who I really, really admire. Uh, I, I love George Whitfield and think, uh, of course, that he's he's one of the greatest evangelical preachers ever. Um, maybe with Billy Graham, he's he's one of the two greatest evangelical preachers ever. Um, but he is definitely not a perfect person, uh, and there's some real problems there in terms of his relationship with his wife and also with slavery. Uh, and we we knew that, uh, especially about slavery, going uh, into my research for the book. But um, as I was trying to take a comprehensive read of all of his um, letters and correspondence, I found uh, a letter in an uh, archive in London that suggested to me um, that he had uh, illegally introduced slaves into his uh, orphanage and plantations in Georgia mm. before Georgia had actually legalized slavery. Oh. And, uh, and I think that was that was a new factual discovery that right. I, that I made. Uh, and so that that's that was kind of a moment of truth for me as uh, as a historian about am I going to be a historian or am I going to be a polemicist? And the polemicist would say, well, I really like George Whitfield, so I'm not going to uh, uh, you know bring this revelation to light. Um, but the historian in me said, no, um, you, you know the the fact that I like Whitfield so much really makes it even more important that I. Um, am honest about some pretty damning information uh, about him that he was so pro-slavery that he was willing to break the law to introduce slaves into Georgia. Um, that that's that, that's pretty bad. Yeah. And so uh, you know, if I was trying to say you know Whitfield was perfect and he was you, you know he was the exemplary Christian leader in every way, then I would feel tempted to um, obfuscate evidence like that. Mm-hmm. Now, as you think through, you know, the task of writing history, and, you know, you're trying to avoid some of these, these, these habits where you might be tempted to be more of a polemicist than a historian, what are some of the, the type of habits then that, as a historian, you want to cultivate? I mean, we've mentioned here this type of, you know, suspending judgment in order to make sure that you are uh, really being honest or, or transparent about, you know, what, what you're discovering. Um, in terms of the task of writing history, are there other, other habits as well that you're trying to cultivate? 
Yeah, I mean, I I think it uh, certainly some of it is just uh, you know the the basics of of being willing to dig deep into uh, the sources. I mean, uh, when I was doing my dissertation, for instance, I mean, I I, I was studying uh, the kind of post Puritan. Uh, era of of colonial New England's history, and I really felt like I basically just wanted to look at everything that had been published from about uh, 1690 to 1740. Uh, and so, for instance, I read every issue of uh, the Boston Newsletter, which was Boston's uh, main newspaper, or at least for about uh, about 20 years. It was the only newspaper in Boston, and so I just read every every issue. Now it was a weekly, so I did that didn't mean I could read it every day. <laughs> But but I mean that just took a long time and it and it forced me to read a lot of stuff that I just simply didn't know what they were talking about. Mm. Uh, but then that that introduced me to some really uh, I think I think uh, revelatory information about the way that people in Boston and in Massachusetts and New England envisioned themselves uh, during those those days. So so I found out that for instance that. Uh, the lead news story in Boston in 1724, the top news story basically every week, was about a, ma- a massacre of Protestants in Poland. And I thought, I thought well, that's fat. Like I wouldn't have even thought they would know about this, but that tells you about the world of international Protestantism that they lived in, and the, that they thought we're what we're doing is is very much in league with our brother and sister Protestants in Poland. Um, and that was just brand new information to me that I had to have the, the kind of the discipline of just reading through these these newspapers about a lot of stuff that, you know, just uh, until I read those newspapers about the episode in Poland, I'd never heard of that. Um, so, so some of it is just, uh, you know, getting down into the nitty gritty of the sources and and being willing to just read and read and read, um, yeah. and that—that's uh, what opens you to the, you know, the new worlds of, of information. But then I—I I, I do think you know when you're interpreting the information, you know, I don't—I—I I, I don't know what you think about this, but but to me, the ob- objectivity really isn't the standard. It's it's fairness. It's it's understanding that for me, I have biases as. Uh, you know, as an evangelical Christian and a political conservative and all the, I mean, that, you know, that potentially gives me blinders. And so I've, I've just got to be aware of that going in and, mm-hmm. and call it like I see it, including about somebody like, like Whitfield, um, that as much as I admire him, I am not allowed to cover up the more negative things about yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you brought up objectivity because sometimes we're under the impression that, um, I mean, certainly we want to be objective, but uh, sometimes we can be under the impression with, in terms of just historical method, that pure total objectivity is something possible or even something we should try to achieve. But like you said, uh, well, Everybody is coming from somewhere out of some type of context. Uh, you're not coming to a historical text uh, out of you know a box. Uh, you are coming to the text out of a certain context. That you know, I suppose you know to be critical, someone might call it bias. But in that sense, everybody is biased. So I think, yeah, I think fairness may be uh, in terms of you know what is the standard. 
fairness. I, I love to use the word uh, honesty, a type of historical honesty about, about what you are seeing, what's occurring. Do you think, I mean, this is another question that um, I, I've thought of over the years and just kind of mold over. Can a, a type of, uh, can there be a type of good bias? I mean, you mentioned, for example, as you're approaching Whitfield, uh, you know, you are an evangelical yourself. Can there be a sense in which that type of pre-understanding can can actually help you and aid you in the historical task that uh, you might not, that, you know, otherwise it, it might not be there at all? Is, can, that, can that be a type of aid? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, it, it, like you said, it's it's unavoidable because we're all coming from a certain location. I mean, I always think about. <laughs> I knew a, a um, an older gentleman who who was uh, a, a professor who studied Baptist history, um, and remembering here a conversation with him one time, and and he claimed that the fact that he was a Texas Baptist had nothing to do with the fact that he studied Baptist history. <laughs> he, said, he said, I'm objective. I, uh, it doesn't matter that I'm Baptist yeah. myself. And I, I thought, this is not plausible. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, 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 it shapes your interests. It shapes what you want to uh, study and understand. And it can certainly potentially shape your, your conclusions. Um, um, and so when I'm studying the Great Awakening, um, you, you know, I, it's just about impossible for me to come to, to the conclusion, as some historians have, that that the Great Awakening was mostly an in, insincere, you know, just froth of emotionalism. Mm. Um, I, I don't I don't believe that, and I don't I just don't see any way I could come to that conclusion. And and maybe that's partly because you know I've experienced in my own life, obviously conversion. But uh, you know, worship the Lord, and you know, fervent worship, and these sorts of things, and and so I feel like some of my background leads me maybe to understand it a, a little more. Oh. Now, I, there have been secular historians who've done a wonderful job of understanding things like religious experience. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I I can't, I wouldn't say you can't understand it, but I, I do think that my background. Uh, it makes a few things easier for me about studying religious history, if nothing else, than just I understand the you know the biblical references and the and the theological context of some things uh, that might make it more difficult. And, and when I was studying Ben Franklin, uh, who even though he comes to be a sort of deist or, or skeptic, he's raised in a Puritan family. And so he knows the Bible backwards and forwards, and I think I was able to catch more of Franklin's biblicism uh, because of my own biblicism. I have to say, sometimes I think Franklin knew the text of the Bible better than I do, but, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, he grew up a Puritan. I mean, what, what can you say? But, but so I think that there are some practical advantages that, that way, too, but Christians, like everybody else, I mean, we're obligated to be fair and to be honest, like you said. Yeah. Now, you've written different types of history, and maybe this can be really a, a helpful point in, in our podcast as, you know, our listeners are thinking, okay, I, I, I think I understand, okay, how to cultivate certain habits, but it's complex. I mean, there's, um, there's social his- history, there's intellectual history, and then there's even just in terms of the genres themselves, 
um, you know, writing, say, a survey is very different than, say, writing an in-depth analysis. Uh, and all that's mm-hmm. very different than, say, writing a biography. Now, you, with, with both Whitfield and Franklin, you have entered into that world, I think, with biography. How is, in your experience, how is writing biography different than other, other types of historical research and thinking and writing? Uh, I, I think in a way it's, um, just as the technical matter of writing it, it's easier writing biographies than, uh, sort of composite histories. Um, partly because it's so clear what you need to do, um, that, that you need to, I mean, I, I focus on certain things and not others, even in a biography, but there's always the, subjects life chronology that sort of keeps you in check where compared to say you know when i wrote a book on american christians and islam um you know that could go a lot of different directions Mm -hmm. over a long period of time and so i felt like i was constantly challenged page to page about what do i put in and what do i not put in well, you know, with Franklin, you know that you've got to talk about him flying the kite and electricity, you know, and into <laughs> the lightning storm and all that. You, you can't have a book on Franklin that doesn't talk about that. But then I'm focused more on his religious views and his religious background and his biblicism and how that syncs up or doesn't sync up with his deism and uh, those sorts of things. But but I do, I, I the the reality is for historians that most people who are not academic historians um, like biography, um, and there there are a lot of readers who would prefer all things being equal to read biography over uh, general history. Mm. Um, and, and so, um, I, and and I I feel some of that too. I mean, when I'm reading outside of my uh, area of specialty, I'm, I often find myself gravitating towards biographies. And I, you know, I don't know exactly what it is about us that, that we just like people's life stories. Um, and so for me, writing a biography is in a way a sort of concession to what I think people are generally interested in, in reading and publishers like that too, um, because they want to sell, sell books. And so, um, I, I find that you know, taking a biographical approach still allows you to open up vistas about uh, the world in which Franklin or Whitfield lived, um, but it's just with the hook of this person's life story. So um, that that's why I've you know ended up doing a fair number of biographies and write and and now I'm writing a similar book on Thomas Jefferson so um I'm I'm up to the same thing again and and I and I think that that with when you compare uh Whitfield to say Jefferson I really don't like Jefferson as much as I like Whitfield and so the temptation there is the is the opposite direction of being overly critical and just piling on I, th- I think some biographers do that too, um, and that that can be another way of just being unfair and polemical. Mm. I can't help but uh, you know put my finger on on something for a minute. Uh, it, naturally, you've gravitated towards American history. I mean, uh, Whitfield and Jefferson mm. and the, the the Great Awakening. 
you've written a lot on the Great Awakening as well. Um, what I mean, when you when we look at history as a whole, American history and the whole scope of things is quite recent. Um, a lot of times, uh, budding historians are really drawn to uh, say European his, European history, uh, Western history. Uh, especially in terms of, say, the ancient, in terms of Christianity, in terms of the ancient church or the Reformation. Uh, what, is it, what is it, though, about American religious history or even church history that uh, you keep coming back to? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I suspect like a lot of historians that I have just a lot of different interests. And, and like I said, I mean, I often find myself reading uh, especially reading for pleasure, just in completely different uh, areas and time areas and time periods, and um, and I, I try to to broaden the focus into into things that you know often that I I, I just don't know much about at all. Hmm. Um, but in uh, I mean America, uh, it, you know, it, it has to do with our our national setting and, and location that it it's it's just going to have a a premium uh, for Americans, and you could say the same thing about people living in other countries. But uh, America's power uh, and and resources and wealth has made it, um, you, you know, incomparably influential, especially in the 20th and 21st century. But that also has played out in uh, uh, religion. And so, what has gone on with uh, American evangelicalism, for instance, makes a big difference on on the global stage. Now, it may not always be like that. Uh, in you know, America uh, shows many signs of being in decline. And so, uh, you know, a century from now, America may be back to being uh, just one world power among uh, among others. But um, you know, it, again, it's it's like biography. I mean, if you're if you're uh, trying to reach a broader audience in the United States I, on balance, what people are going to want to read is American history and not just American history generally, but uh, often biography. So uh, that that's one of the reasons why I keep coming back to that is, you know, on balance. I'd rather read, write things that people want to read uh, rather than things they don't want to read. Now, in terms of uh, writing history, uh, of course, we're coming to this conversation kind of on two sides of the table. Um, you've taught history and, and uh, have been a historian for many, many years. And uh, I'm, of course, coming to the table with my love for theology, which, of course, overlaps so much with history. As we bridge this, uh, bridge these disciplines between history and theology, it raises the question, well, uh, why is history so crucial for theology. Now, I know you are focusing on a specific area of American history, but even as you reflect on your own your own research, uh, how have you found history to be uh, quite essential for for theology? Well, right. I mean, I think that in your work, I mean, that you uh, show the value of, say, you know, when you're thinking about something like the Trinity or something like that, it's important to have a historical background or else you can get, uh, you know, into thinking that something that's actually kind of uh, newfangled and theologically dicey. I mean, you you could start thinking that, that, well, this is what people have always believed. Mm. 
and and so one of the best things that history can do is is for for theology is just give you perspective about um, whether something is normative in the flow of church history or whether it's outlandish or mm. you know whether whether some way that someone is explaining a doctrine flows with uh, you know what, what we call the great tradition of the church, um, and you know, uh, of course, you know sometimes tradition is wrong. I mean, as Baptists, we we have to believe that because there was a whole long time in church history where uh, you know very few, if any, people were being baptized as believers. So we you know we had to break with tradition on an issue uh, like that. But but. Uh, so you know our, our ultimate authority is the word, but uh, we can see uh, ways in which interpretations of the word are newfangled or aberrant by putting uh, putting that teaching up to com- the comparison of uh, the great teachers of of uh, church history. So, I mean, I I really think, and I, I know you would agree with this. I mean, I, I really think that sort of historical approach. Um, doesn't just help with theology. I mean, it's it's, it's just essential, mm. uh, or else we're going to have you know this kind of radical individualistic yeah. type of approach to theology, which will lead to no good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I'm constantly discussing with my students, uh, even if it's a class on theology, uh, it certainly comes up in classes in history or historical theology. But even in a class in theology. Uh, one one of the issues that we discuss is just how crucial it is, even a set, essential, like you said, to situate uh, our theological discussion in its historical context. So I I can certainly uh, testify firsthand to to what you're saying, and uh, e- even in my own theological journey, I I've been able to spot, hey, at this when I've analyzed this particular issue out of the out of historical context. Um, well, it actually uh, shuts me off to so many of the historical insights that then bring me into contact with uh, the universal church. Now, I mean, this this type of discussion over theology and history, I, I think, like, like you've said, uh, these two are indispensable to one another. As you're looking to the future uh, in terms of, you know, what you've done in the past, but as you you know, you look to the future as to you know how you might contribute to historical studies going forward. Uh, how, how do you see yourself? Um, maybe in the next five to ten years, uh, you've written on uh, Benjamin Franklin. You've written on George Whitfield. You've you've written a lot on just the broad scope of American religious history, and even recently pressing into evangelicalism. Uh, what contribution do you think you might make going forward? Well, uh, definitely one theme that I want to keep pressing forward with is what difference that um, religion made in the American founding, uh, which is a hugely uh, controversial and debated <laughs> issue. Uh, but, but you know, I mean, the reason why I'm working on this Jefferson book uh, is partly to try to sort out um, where Jefferson was coming from mm. uh, religiously, which is uh, just an extremely hotly debated issue among American evangelicals in the past 10 or 15 years. Um, and uh, uh, of course, some of the more um, polemical 
uh, forms of this will will say, well, look, you know, Jefferson uh, was really, really interested in the Bible, so maybe he he was a Christian, uh, which which I think is um, you, you know really bad uh, sort of historical method, especially when it's when it's easy to uh, figure out that Jefferson you know, denied the Trinity from early in life. And uh, and uh, some of your listeners will know about the Jefferson uh, Bible that he uh, produced an edition of the Gospels with most of the miracles taking it, taken out, uh, especially uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I tell people when this comes up at church or something, I say, so what, what, edition of the Gospels is acceptable <laughs> to you that doesn't include the resurrection. You know? <laughs> and uh, evangelicals say, well, none. And uh, right. So, he, you know, uh, he and, and it's not that hard to figure this stuff out, but I just, I feel like we need, mm-hmm. uh, and pastors need, you know, some resources to look to, to make heads or tails of this stuff. So, was Jefferson interested in the Bible? He was obsessed with the Bible. Mm. I mean, just and, I mean, as an adult, he regularly read the Septuagint for heaven's sake. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, he's absolutely obsessed. That's why he puts together this, you, you know, uh, naturalized version of the Gospels. But he he's an anti supernaturalist. He's mm. a materialist, right? I mean, so. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, we have plenty of people in academia who are who devote their lives to the study of the Bible who are not believers, right? And so, so you know, Jefferson is, you know, the sort of person who fits into that that mold. So we just need to understand him for what what he was. Um, and uh, you know, I, I I will continue to work, I'm sure, on uh, you know evangelicalism. I'm I'm working on the second half of a. A church history textbook for B and H now, and uh, you know that that's all in an effort to bring that kind of historical context of theology uh, and a revival and those those sorts of things to, especially to pastors. That that's always a, a passion of mine, uh, but it's got to be done in a in a way that that's accessible and seems relevant to to pastors' concerns. We've been talking to Thomas Kidd about what it means to be a good historian. If you've never read Thomas Kidd or any of his books, I would encourage you to do so. You may want to pick up his book on American history or his more recent, uh, his more recent book, Who is an Evangelical? Or perhaps you love biography and, and you've really been encouraged. Uh, maybe you want to write biography one day. Perhaps uh, take a look at Benjamin Franklin or George Whitfield and and do so through uh, the lens of Thomas Kidd. Uh, Tommy, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast to talk about what it means to be a good historian. Thanks for having me. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.